the laws of war are different from the laws of peace. But what constitutes peace and what constitutes war? Today, we're going to be speaking about this topic with law professor Rosa Brooks, who's joining us via Skype from her office at Georgetown Law, about her book, How Everything Became War and War Became Everything, Tales from the Pentagon. Rosa, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Lee. It's good to be here. Uh, You're not only a law professor at Georgetown, you have a very interesting background. Can you describe to people a little bit about your work with the Pentagon and how you came to write the book? Sure. Some would call it an interesting background. Some would call it schizophrenic. Um, So I like interesting. I most recently spent a few years at the uh, U.S. Department of Defense in the Pentagon working uh, as a counselor to the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. And in addition to that, I've worked at the State Department in the late years of the Bill Clinton administration. Uh, And I've worked on and off as a journalist as well and wrote a column for the Los Angeles Times for several years. And how I came to the Pentagon, you know, when I was in my late 20s, um, I spent a lot of time, partly because of my State Department job, working in places such as Kosovo and Sierra Leone And in both of those places, uh, had serious conflicts that were either averted or ended because of a foreign military intervention in the context of Kosovo, an air campaign led by the United States with other NATO nations uh, averted what might have been an ethnic cleansing campaign in the context of Sierra Leone, a British military intervention, uh, largely ended the worst of Sierra Leone civil war. So that brought me into a lot of contact with military personnel. And I think for the first time for me, got a sense up close and personal of the incredible range of activities that they undertook. And that led to a scholarly interest in looking at the role of the military in post-conflict settings, which in turn, when President Obama was elected, led me to reach out to Michelle Flournoy, who had been nominated to be Undersecretary for Policy at the Defense Department, asked her if she wanted to hire a law professor who most of the time could write. (laughs) And somewhat to my amazement, she said, yes, let's come on in and we'll figure out later when you get here what you're going to be doing. Now, this wasn't necessarily a natural extension of your life and your upbringing. You say in the book that your parents really were quite startled that you agreed to work at the Pentagon. Could you please? Yeah, Yeah, I come from a family of anti-war activists. And some of my earliest memories, uh, I remember at age four, sitting on a picnic blanket in the grass in Central Park in New York City at a big celebration marking the end of the Vietnam War. And I also remember standing outside of our, our neighborhood post office in 1980 to protest the requirement that young men register for the draft. None of this uh, made me a a natural fit for the Pentagon. In fact, when I got offered a job at the Defense Department, it took me a few weeks to work up the courage to tell my mother I was was scared she would be disapproving and shocked. And, And in fact, of course, like any good mother, she said, that's wonderful. I'm so proud of you. You will do good things. Uh, But it wasn't an obvious place for me to end up. I think it's fair to say that Our ideas of war have certainly changed since the events of September 11th. Uh, I know that when President Bush first came on the TV and I was watching him speak, I was still in college at the time, and he kept saying, war on terror, war on terror. And I was baffled because, to me, terror is an emotion. And I kept saying, no, it should be war on terrorism, war on terrorism. But really, theories of war very, very widely, as you have described. Can you talk a little bit about 
the major change in thought between pre-9-11 and post-9-11 in America. Yeah, um, I think we're, we're still struggling with this. Obviously, people have always used war as a metaphor. And in fact, the day before the September 11th attacks, September 10th, George W. Bush was speaking as part of an anti-illiteracy campaign. And he said, we need to declare war on illiteracy. But nobody thought, of course, that he meant we're going to send, you know, special operations troops in to, you know, clobber the illiterate. Everybody knew it was a metaphor. And I think when he first said we're going to have a war on terror, there was some question of, well, maybe this is just another metaphor, like the war on poverty, uh, war on illiteracy. But it pretty quickly became apparent that that was not what he meant, uh, that he meant war in the sense of uh, military force um, used very aggressively. I think what what was so challenging, though, about 9-11 from a sort of legal and political perspective was that traditionally we think of war as between the uniformed militaries of states or at the very least between a state's military and perhaps a an insurgent group that is fighting to topple it, gain territory and seize political control. And the 9-11 attacks didn't look like either of those situations. We had a group of individuals from multiple different nationalities who used a hijacked civilian plane, were armed with nothing but box cutters, and yet managed to inflict death and damage on a scale that we previously only associated with state use of force, uh, things like the Pearl Harbor attacks. And that was just kind of boggling, I think, to a lot of people. It also presented real conundrums from a legal perspective, because the the law of war, what we law professors call the law of armed conflict, was really designed for those state-on-state -state conflicts, or if not that, for conflicts between states and organized, coherent, armed groups that operated out in the open. So having these sort of murky organizations that aren't clearly organized, are do not operate out in the open, don't wear uniforms, operate across borders, don't necessarily have any territorial ambitions or ambitions to seize and hold political power, uh, meant that it was really a struggle to figure out, you know, what to do, what law applies to this. And since then, I think the challenge has only gotten worse because we've increasingly, for instance, been trying to figure out how to address cyber threats. And here we have something that gets us even further away from our our paradigm of, you know, wars between these two armies on a big open plain charging towards each other with their rifles at their shoulder. Instead, we have lines of code that can cause actual damage in the physical world or siphon off tons of money or cause chaos and confusion. But there's, there are no weapons. There are no soldiers. There is not necessarily any bloodshed. And yet we have come to think of it primarily through the framework of war, which makes everything really confusing. Do you think that us looking more at things through the lens of war is at least partially because of the amount of resources we've shifted to the Department of Defense um, and to the military? Well, I think we, we, yes, to some extent, and teasing out cause and effect is really hard here because I think there's, there's something of a vicious circle going on where as the United States faces threats that don't fit neatly into our traditional categories. So as we face threats from non-state actors or threats from cyberspace, for instance, or around the corner, maybe threats from bioengineered viruses, things like that. As we face these non-traditional threats, we have tended to look at them through the lens, the legal and political 
lens of war, the more things we put in that box we label war, the more things seem like tasks for the military rather than, say, the Treasury Department or the State Department or whatever it may be. The more things we define as tasks for the military, the more money we have to give to the military because the military is going to take on all these new things. It needs resources to do it. The bigger the military gets, we have to look for savings elsewhere, which means we shrink or freeze the budgets of the civilian agencies, such as the State Department or USAID, which then their capabilities dwindle. The less they can do, the more we turn to the military. Again, the more we turn to the military to solve all problems, the more the military, being the military, is likely to define all problems as war. And that cycle just goes around again. You describe a lot of ambivalence by high-ranking members of the military over the changes that have come, over the different tasks that they're asked to complete. Uh, When working at the Pentagon, what was the most surprising thing you learned about the kinds of actions the military was being expected to you know, I don't know if there was any one thing, but but I, I do remember two things uh, I'll highlight. One, I remember um, discovering that the military was involved both in, in funding and in, in trying to implement a program in the Democratic Republic of Congo designed to prevent the use of sexual violence by Congolese military forces uh, and uh, rebel groups and so forth. And, you know, this study involved social scientists, it involved experts on violence against women, experts on war crimes. Uh, it was culminating in you know, workshops for soldiers and for civilians in the Congo. And it was a good program. It was a great program, but it kind of blew my mind that the U.S. military was doing it in the sense of pick an issue, any issue, any problem. And frankly, odds are very, very high that somewhere deep inside the Pentagon or, or in the extended Defense Department network, someone is working on it somewhere. There's almost nothing that doesn't fall potentially within the ambit of the Defense Department. And the other story I'll tell is not really my story. It's a story that was told to me by a friend, uh, retired Major General Paul Eaton, who had been in Afghanistan in the mid-2000s. And, and he said, you know, it became very clear to military officials in Afghanistan that there was not going to be any sustainable peace, no matter how many Taliban operatives were killed, unless the Afghans could diversify their agricultural economy to be less reliant on opium poppies and so forth. And so essentially, army leaders call up the agriculture department back in Washington and say, hi, agricultural department, here we are, we're, we're military officials, we, we've been fighting a war in Afghanistan, but we think we need your help. Could you please send some agriculture experts over here to Afghanistan to help the Afghans figure out how to diversify their agriculture economy? And of course, the agriculture department says something along the lines of, um, we only have two people and they're really busy right now, and besides, they don't want to go to Afghanistan because they don't want to get shot at by anybody. And so this leaves senior military officials scratching their heads, but they come up with a solution. They think, well, you know, we have Army reservists and National Guards troops all over the United States. Some of them are farmers. Some of them work for agriculture companies. Let's identify those people and get them over here. You know, and a short time later, you've got a battalion or so of farmers and agriculture company employees over in Afghanistan. And they may or may not be the right people. In a sense, you know, being a farmer in Iowa doesn't necessarily mean you know anything about how to help the Afghans diversify an opium-based economy, but they were there, which is 
again, kind of amazing that we don't have any other institution in the United States, really almost in the world, that is capable of marshalling that much human talent and getting it from place A to place B quickly, leaving aside the question of do you really want a bunch of National Guardsmen who happen to be Iowa farmers to be running a program to diversify Afghanistan's economy. So often through your book, I just kept thinking about the children's song, There's a Hole in the Bucket. For any of our listeners who maybe did not sing this as a kid, it's, you know, there's a hole in the bucket, dear Liza, dear Liza, there's a hole in the bucket, dear Liza, a hole. And she says, well, fix it, dear Henry. And then dear Henry said, oh, sure, you know, love to, basically. But, you know, how do I do that? And she said, okay, well, plug the hole. Okay, well, I need this to plug the hole. Oh, okay. Well, uh, that's not available because this other step has to happen. And then it becomes circular. And at the very end, the song ends. But do it with straw. And, and Yeah, but do it with straw. And But I, you know, have to cut the straw. And yeah, the straw is too long. And, yeah. and then at the very end, it comes back to wet it with water. And she, he says, well, how do I get the water? She says, use the bucket. And he says, but there's a hole in the bucket. Yep. And I just kept thinking about that song when you were describing the efforts that the American military has made in order to prop up nation states that perhaps were never states proper to begin with. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think that there's a, that's the vicious circle that we're in. Um, we have a big hole in our national bucket, which is that we, we have very little capability outside of the military to move people around, to get people from place A to place B in large numbers rapidly, especially when place B might be a dangerous place that nobody's exactly begging to go to for touristic purposes. And when you don't have anybody, any civilians playing that role, of course you're going to turn to the military, but that's ultimately just going to make the problem worse. To switch gears a little bit, you mentioned that prior to, say, the 19th century, this idea of the laws of war being an internationally recognized thing was not really established. Every culture had their own beliefs pertaining to war, but you didn't have any sort of national standards, say the Geneva Convention, the Hague Convention. What really drove that process and how did the thinking come around to, you know what, this is a place where laws can be imposed? Yeah. No, I mean, on the one hand, as you said, um, every world culture has had rules and norms about what you should and shouldn't do during wartime. And in fact, every culture around the world has put a tremendous amount of energy into developing these traditions and norms of, of, of chivalry, for instance, or here's who you can kill these people, but not those people, or don't shoot the messenger, uh, as it were. Um, but it's not until the mid to late 19th century in the West that we begin to see this shifting from traditional standards of behavior to laws. And the American Civil War in the United States played a huge role in that, for instance. It was actually a, a legal code that was drawn up for the Union Army uh, and became signed by Abraham Lincoln, became General Order Number 100 for Union Armies in the field that for the U.S. for the first time codified this, uh, but put it into words and said things like, no, you can't torture enemy prisoners and you have to try to distinguish between enemy soldiers and civilians. And one of the, one of the many things 
interestingly, that that code said, still famous today, usually more colloquially known as the, the Lieber Code after Francis Lieber, who drafted it, uh, is it said, peace is the norm, war is the exception, and the entire purpose of war is to get back to peace. Um, and so you have to behave in such a way during war to make it easier to get back to peace. So it's the whole edifice is kind of premised on the idea that the rules for war are rules for this moment of exception. Uh, they're not meant to be permanent rules. They're just there for a short time. And, the, and their goal is to make it easier to get back to peace, which is the normal state of affairs. And around the same time in, in Europe, uh, Henri Dunant, the founder of the International Committee of the Red Cross, was shocked by the carnage uh, that he had witnessed in battle. And he proposed some kind of international convention to come up with agreed upon rules for taking care of the sick and wounded and so forth. And that eventually led to the creation and codification of the, the Geneva Conventions, which with which I think everyone is at least loosely familiar. And between that period of time in the late 19th century and the decade or so following the end of World War II, the laws of war, law of armed conflict, became progressively more detailed, more codified, Today, there are criminal penalties attached to those who violate them, not only in, in U.S. courts. The Federal War Crimes Act, for instance, makes it a federal crime to commit grave breaches of the Geneva Conventions. And the Uniform Code of Military Justice uh, also penalizes members of our armed forces who violate the Geneva Conventions. Uh, and similarly, on the international level, we now have courts such as the International Criminal Court, which in still a relatively small number of cases, does have the jurisdiction to try and punish people who violate the laws of armed conflict. In the United States, we really do see such a divide in our thinking between war and not war, or what can be considered military and what's not military, that we do have these, you know, we have what we call largely the justice system, and then we have the military justice system. We have this entire other kind of legal justice. If we make this shift into a really cloudy future in which we can't tell, well, what's what's military, what's not military, what's war, what's not war, who's a combatant, how would we be able to maintain our current justice system? What changes would we have to make? I think it's going to be an enormous challenge. I mean, here here's the, the fundamental problem. Um, to put it in its bluntest form, lots of things that we would consider illegal and immoral during peacetime are moral and legal and, in fact, praiseworthy during wartime. And, and think of something like killing, obviously, and again, and it's most basic. Uh, during peacetime, if you go out and you kill somebody, you will probably be arrested, charged with murder and convicted and sent off to prison, maybe even executed, because you're not supposed to take the life of another human being. On the other hand, in the context of a war, if you're a soldier in wartime and you're looking at an enemy soldier, you're not only permitted to kill that person, you may be required to kill that person. You may get a medal if you do kill them and you may be prosecuted for cowardice or desertion if you fail to do so. So the, the behavior that we expect in wartime is almost the polar opposite of many of the kinds of behaviors we expect and reward in peacetime. And it's not just killing, it's also other lesser forms of force and coercion. It's various kinds of censorship and monitoring is permissible in wartime, but we would not accept in peacetime. Uh, detention in peacetime, if we want to 
lock somebody up. If the government wants to lock them up, they have to go through a very elaborate process designed to protect individual rights. Uh, if you want to detain somebody in wartime, you can detain both enemy prisoners and civilians of the other side indefinitely for the duration of the conflict with no judicial process whatsoever. And so we really want to know the difference, right? So we have this set of rules that is very tolerant of force, coercion, secrecy, doesn't have a lot of democratic checks and balances to it. And we tolerate that because we think of war as the temporary exception, as the Lieber Code during the American Civil War put it. Uh, you know, peace is the norm, war is the exception. And so we can have, it's okay to have this moment when you have suspension of the ordinary rules, as long as that moment doesn't last forever. The situation we're in right now, I think, that the post 9-11 universe, because it's gotten harder and harder to draw any clear line around, well, where does war end and where does it begin? Um, we don't know when to apply those rules for the exceptions. And as we add more and more things to this box we call war, we're beginning to apply laws designed to be applied only on an exceptional basis pretty much all the time. Another interesting thing I thought you pointed out that sort of relates to this is what I'm going to call the classified creep. As a journalist, of course, I'm always very concerned about governments being open. And you talk about how the government classifies secrets and what is considered classified, what is not considered classified, and how much more is classified and whether or not it's even needed. Was that startling to you too, as a journalist entering the Pentagon? Yes, it was. And it's not, this is certainly not a new problem. I think it may be accelerating, but it's not new. Um, for many decades, we've had complaints about essentially the government declaring too many things classified, top secret, nobody can see them unnecessarily, sometimes uh, just out of sheer laziness and sometimes to cover up waste or fraud or abuse. So I remember when I was at the State Department in the late 1990s, I was working on an issue that did not strike me, at least, as being very sensitive at all. Um, and yet I kept having memos across my desk that were stamped top secret. And I finally went to the more senior person who had been classifying these memos. And I, I said, sir, you know, I'm confused. Can you explain to me what is top secret about this issue? And he said quite cheerfully, he said, oh, nothing. But if you don't put top secret on a document, nobody thinks it's important, so they don't read it. <laughs> and oh, I was sympathetic because I, I took his point, but that obviously is not the purpose of the classification system at all. And I think more recently what we've been seeing, um, particularly in the context of counterterrorism, is sort of larger and larger chunks of American foreign policy sort of disappearing into the covert world and one obvious example of that would be uh, what people sort of colloquially refer to as drone strikes, U.S. Uh, targeted killings, killings of suspected terrorist operatives around the world in countries with which we are not at war, where we don't have necessarily any involvement in, in ground combat. So strikes of suspected terrorists in Yemen or Pakistan or Libya, for instance. And this is a very poorly kept secret. It's kind of hard to hide several thousand dead bodies over a period of many years, we, everybody knows, NGOs, journalists, foreign countries, and the American public is aware that the U.S. government has been using these strikes uh, for counterterrorism purposes. But technically speaking, the U.S. still has not acknowledged all but a tiny fraction of the strikes. 
has not said, yes, here are the names of the people we targeted, here are the reasons we targeted them, you know, here's the location, here's what happened. Because our answer has always been, well, we can't tell you any of that stuff because it's it's all a secret, it's classified. And that is kind of shocking to me. And it makes it obviously very, very difficult if you are an American citizen or a journalist to assess, uh, did the U.S. make the right call? Was the U.S. right to consider, um, going back to the earlier discussion of what legal framework is the right one, was the U.S. right to consider this guy in Yemen, for instance, a combatant in an armed conflict, in which case he can be killed with no due process, or was the U.S. wrong to consider him a combatant in an armed conflict, in which case we just murdered some guy illegally, immorally? But if it's all a secret and we can't see any of the evidence, then it becomes impossible to even figure out which it was or how we should feel about it. Related to this drone warfare secrecy, you know, you made the contrast in your book between what we think of as more conventional wars, such as World War II, when the Battle of the Bulge happened. Before it happened, of course, everything was very, very secret. But after it occurred, it was not secret that the Allies had landed at Normandy and a battle had been fought. So this really does seem like a, a true departure from what the American public used to be used to in learning about what our government was doing militarily. I think it is. And I think it's another example of the sort of drift where the exception gradually starts overwhelming the norm. You know, that we all accept that there might be covert action on the margins that we're not going to find out about until maybe decades later. There may be rumors, but there are all sorts of reasons that the U.S. is not going to say, yes, we did that thing. Um, but we generally take it for granted that war itself is a it's kind of a quintessential public act. You know, it's something states engage in on a, on a mass scale. And yet, as we shift to this era in which so much of what the U.S. is doing militarily is individualized and covert, that really changes the whole thing, right? So one thing, it's individualized, and this in itself is not obviously such a bad thing. I mean, if the if we have to choose between a drone strike that targets one person and, you know, carpet bombing a city, killing hundreds of thousands, obviously better to kill fewer people than more people. But on the other hand, the more tailored the military action is, the more we are rather than, you know, dropping a bomb on the enemy, but rather dropping a bomb on so-and-so, a 29-year-old we've been watching for three months who has three children and we know everything about him and we know where he goes you know, the more it stops looking like war and starts looking like either law enforcement or, worst case, like we're just murdering a guy, right? So so it's both, it's individualized and it has moved more and more into the covert world. And again, if that's one strike a year, maybe you say, oh, well, you know, some things have to stay covert. We have to protect intelligence sources and methods, and that's important. Um, on the other hand, when we get to a point where, you know, by most conservative estimates, over the last seven or eight years, at least 4,000 and possibly substantially higher number of people have been targeted and killed by U.S. strikes, mainly by drones. That's not an exception anymore, right? 4,000 dead bodies is a lot of dead bodies, um, not to mention property damage and, and the, the impact on communities around those people. And for that to be secret, is kind of mind-boggling. And it's particularly mind when you think it's not secret, that everybody in the entire world knows that when a missile falls out of the sky from nowhere, 
uh, in the middle of Pakistan. There is only one state that has had the capability to do that. So of course it's the United States. So I'm not sure what it does to democracy or to human rights when you have a state that is doing something in a sense in the open and yet refusing to acknowledge that it's doing it. But I don't think it's good. You also make the point that if you are not in the military or married to someone who is or you know, in some way involved directly with the military, most civilians don't know much about the military. They support it, but they don't know much about it, and they don't really try and learn more about it. Do you think this is more of a, a willful blindness and that the American public perhaps just does not want more details? I think there's some truth to that, but I also think that the turning support for the military into a kind of civic religion since 9-11 has not been a particularly good thing. I mean, I think it was, of course, a good thing and a real contrast, perhaps, to the Vietnam era for Americans to be able to say, hey, whether or not I support the Iraq war, you know, that doesn't mean, you know, even if I oppose it, that doesn't mean that you should denigrate the service and the risks being taken by these very young men and women in uniform uh, I think that was a good thing, but we we took it a little bit far. We turned it into this, you know, thank you for your service. Uh, would you like to board the airplane before everybody else? Everybody in uniform is a hero. And the downside of doing that, you know, it's 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 a good thing to say we we acknowledge and respect the risks you're taking and that you're doing it on behalf of our democracy. But going from that to this kind of we can't say anything negative, I think actually makes it very difficult for people who aren't part of the military community to feel comfortable voicing any criticisms or asking certain kinds of questions. You know, that when everybody in the military, from the humblest clerk who will never, ever, ever see combat, you know, to the guy who won the Medal of Honor, when they're all heroes and they're all warriors and we think they're all wonderful and perfect, how do you say, well, you know, maybe our Defense Department budget is too high, or maybe that military mission was a big mistake, or maybe we ought to recruit differently and train differently, and so forth. I think people can feel very silenced because you know it's it's too easy for politicians and people in the military community to just look at them and say, "Well, you don't understand. You obviously don't understand." So keep your mouth shut. And I th- I think that is part of it too. I would like to leave it off with. I thought this was very. Interesting. And you apparently use this enough in your law school classes that it led to a present of a six pack. Could you explain the Ludwig Wittgenstein duck rabbit analogy and how that relates to our ideas of war, not war? Yeah. So Ludwig Wittgenstein, I'm actually not entirely sure a German speaker would think I had that right either, but that's my best guess. He was an Austrian philosopher. And he was famous, among other things, for uh, writing extensively about the philosophy of language and the relationship between words and concepts and categories, linguistic categories and reality, you know, things out there in the world that exist independent of the words we come up with for them. And he had a famous little drawing that he would make for his own students. And it was a drawing of a little creature that might have been a duck and might have been a rabbit. And it sort of, you know, if you looked at it one way, you thought, oh, clearly that's a rabbit. I can see its two ears. And if you sort of squinted and looked at it sideways, you say, oh, no, wait a minute. I think that's a picture of a duck. That's its beak. You know, it's like that famous drawing of the, is this a vase or is this two profiles looking at each other? And no matter how long you look at this, you can't pin it down as it is clearly a duck. It is clearly a rabbit because it could be both and you just don't know. 
And he, he made this drawing to illustrate the point that uh, how we understand the meaning of words and categories has everything to do with context. And he says, you know, if you see this little drawing I just made and, and I surround it with pictures of things that are clearly ducks, you'll say, oh, it's a duck. And if I, on the other hand, if I surround it with pictures of things that are clearly rabbits, you'll say it's clearly a rabbit. But if you see it by itself, it's not one thing or the other. It just doesn't make any sense to say it's one thing or the other. It could be either. It could be both. We don't know. It gets its meaning only from the way we use it and from the context. And how does this, <laughs> how does this relate to war? I think the situation we're in now, and the reason I would always show my students this image of the duck rabbit, is I would say something like, you know, take a guy who is a financier for terrorism in Yemen, or we think he's a financier for terrorism in Yemen, and he doesn't walk around carrying a weapon ever. And he, you know, he's in a country with which we're not at war, and he's not a card-carrying member of any military or organization. Do we decide he's a combatant in an armed conflict, or do we decide that he is a civilian who may or may not be committing a crime in his own country and may or may not be committing an international crime? There's no answer to that question. It, it's as unanswerable as the question of whether Wittgenstein's little drawing is a duck or is a rabbit. You could see him either way. The legal frameworks don't give you an answer. They give you some options, but they don't give you an answer. And the answer is essentially a political choice. You know, we can choose. We can say uh, we're going to see him as a combatant or we can say, no, we're going to see him as a civilian who's protected and can't be killed. And it's kind of a problem when the law doesn't give you any guidance on how to apply it anymore. You know, that it's one of the very strange things about the law of armed conflict, the law of war, is that the one thing it never defines is what constitutes a war. Um, so you've got this nice, tidy legal framework. It's what law professors, we like to use the fancy Latin phrase, it's so-called lex specialis, which basically means special law. And the law of the special law for war applies during wars, obviously, but not when you're not in a war. But the special law that applies only during wars never says, oh, by the way, and here's how you know when there's a war. So what ends up happening as we expand what we think of as war, those special rules apply in more and more situations. But anyway, yes, you're, you're absolutely right. I spent so much time going on about the duck rabbit. And if any listeners are interested, just Google Wittgenstein, W-I-T-T-G-E-N-S-T-E-I-N, and duck rabbit, and you will quickly see the duck rabbit pop up. But I'm happy to say that one of my students who had spent his summer working in the general counsel's office at a brewery discovered that there is, in fact, a brewery called the Duck Rabbit Brewery, which makes duck rabbit beer. So at the end of the semester, I, I received um, not only a six-pack, but a number of other duck rabbit brewery uh, accessories from my students. I have to imagine that was one of the most coveted internships uh, available to your law students. I had students, the same group of students who were in a little tiny seminar I taught on national security one of them went off to the National Security Agency. One went to the Defense Department. But I did think that the guy who went to the brewery was the, was the one who really knew what he was doing. Well, Rosa, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. We very much appreciate it. Listeners, if you're interested in picking up Rosa Brooks's book, the title is How Everything Became War and War Became Everything, Tales from the Pentagon. Thank you for joining us.